Welcome to the Recruiter Startup Podcast. My name's Dilta Doherty, and in this podcast series, I will be speaking to investors, advisors, entrepreneurs, and recruiters who are based all over the world, and we'll be discussing how you set up, operate, and scale a world-class recruitment company. Today, I'm going to bring you to Houston, and we're going to be speaking to Matt Evelt. He's a group president for Gattaca, a specialist engineering oil and gas recruitment firm. He's worked for Furcraft, TRS Staffing, and a few others over his 20-year career that has taken him from Houston to Mexico City to Abu Dhabi and back again. And this episode is really me delving into how things look for somebody who runs a major staffing firm and to try and get their viewpoint on what he does as a president of of a recruitment firm and what's his what's been his experience of setting up and developing and delivering on staffing services which if you're in the uk that means major contracts so um great guest really knowledgeable incredible guy and i hope you get something from this i definitely did matt Evelt, how are you good how are you doing yeah not too bad not too bad and i think i prefer to be in texas today though is the, is the weather rough where you are yeah, man. Winters in the UK break your heart, so it works. <laughs> well, half of my region's in uh, in Toronto, so I feel the pain sometimes. Oh yeah, uh, we're, but you're you're living in Texas, are you? I do. I, li- I live in Houston or an airport. Otherwise, oh, fantastic! So, welcome to the Recruiter Startup Podcast. Delighted to have you here. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for uh, having me on. And why I wanted to get you on is because you're a well-traveled man. And I wanted to see things from an American's viewpoint of what it's like working for UK companies, what it's like to travel and set up offices around the world, and just basically go into some detail on what's changed throughout your 20-year career in, the, in our wonderful world of staffing, as you would call it. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely wonderful world. So definitely agree with you on that one. But I do have to ask a question first. Am I the first American on your podcast? No, no, no. But you're, you might be the first American that has worked for a number of UK companies. I had, uh, I had a guy called Adam Posner on uh, the other day, and he worked for Gary Vee, and we talked about that. And I've had, I've had million-dollar biller Rich Rosen on. He's an independent recruiter. And uh, yeah, we've had a, we've had a few others. They usually fall into into, into work either being coaches uh, for recruiters or independent recruiters. I tend to find that America's a funny market. It's it's like there's big giant staffing firms, and then there seems to be a lot of independent recruiters as well, especially compared to Europe, anyway. Yeah, absolutely. If you see some of the reports that come out these days, um, you know, eighty percent of all the businesses with two or three or four firms. Um, however, we've got, you know, I think they said 2,000 different firms in the engineering market and even more in the IT market. So 
a lot of money sitting with a couple few of the big, big, big boys out there. So, um, yeah, no, so just with regards to your, your first question, I think, um, yeah, early on in my career, it was mostly spent with, with the big firm, one of the biggest. Um, so I was lucky. I was fortunate to come in um, into the recruitment world. I think when uh, recruitment was still kind of, we call old school recruitment. Uh, I think everybody had, you know, my first couple of weeks on the job, everybody still had the, uh, the card catalog on the, on the table. Um, you still had um, people going through the phone books and dialing, um, you know, calling dialing for dollars back in the day. And, and then over time, quickly, we got into more of the internet databases and then that yeah. evolved into recruitment today where it's no one, um, picks up the phone as much anymore which is very frustrating at points but um yeah it must be hard different... from, a, from a leadership <laughs> perspective but we will jump into that talk to me about those early days at aerotech what were you what were you recruiting for i started with the, the best of the best and that's uh learning um you know general labor uh light technical um in those days it was mostly filling warehouses um you know of all types of skill sets so everything from assemblers packers um forklift drivers um and it was it was right in between the days of, um, you know, really driving a bus and picking up your workforce and bringing them out to a site to kind of the, the, the next level of actually picking people based off their skill and make sure they're a match for uh, the company based on what they can do, but also uh, their personality and kind of um, their long-term goals. So it was, it was a good blend for me to understand high volume recruitment, um, learning the pitfalls of dealing with people as a product um, and then also dealing with some of the big clients out there that, you know, employ thousands and thousands of people. So it was, it was a really interesting start. And um, was, uh, was it mainly servicing the oil and gas uh, contractors at the time? Not out of the gate. Out of the gate, it was mostly uh, production um, uh, type companies, uh, everything from manufacturing um, to the, uh, the healthcare pharmaceutical industry. Um, just clients were all over the, all over the shop in the beginning. Um, but it was just about getting bodies. Uh, one that could pass all the the screen requirements, but then also that uh, you know were intended to stick out the uh, the project. What kept you in that job for five years? I think with uh, with Aerotech, um, you know, I really had a fantastic start uh, to the business. It was very tough. You know, it's um, you know they pride themselves in, in screening out uh, those that actually want to give it and give it a go in the industry and, and want to give it everything they have, and those that don't, they go they go out pretty quick. But I've got to, I got to learn absolutely everything about the business quickly. I uh, learned recruitment, quickly moved my way into sales, quickly got um, uh, pushed into um, more of sales management, uh, large large account management. Uh, that started my traveling within staffing. Uh, they sent me all over the U.S. Uh, opening big accounts, uh, managing those accounts, and making sure that we fulfilled our obligations. And um, I think it, it, it made me a pretty uh, solid staffing professional um, by the time that those five years were up. And for anybody who's listening, American staffing, it's quite different in, in a lot of ways to the way that you, the UK market works. A lot of UK recruiters are 360, so they're doing the candidates and the client piece. But you would have, you would have been flying around, opening up, opening up those, uh, those accounts and then sending those wrecks back to a, a pit of resourcers. Is that, is, that, is that a fair assessment? It is. I think the biggest, you know, after... You know, as, as you know, most of my experience is, is all over all over the world. But I think my biggest takeaway uh, of the difference between especially the UK and, and the American market is um, the American market is very, uh, you know, face forward in front of the client. 
um, a lot of handshakes, a lot of lunches, a lot of really getting to know uh, the ins and outs of their their business um, in person. Whereas it seems, like you said, a lot of the UK market, which is actually a much more mature market, um, is that 360 um, calling in, getting the spec, having a fantastic candidate and getting a, a fee for it. Mm. Whereas a lot of a lot of the American staffing market is it's not just about finding the candidates, it's about making sure that, that they, they not only uh, go to the job, stay on the job, but perform at a certain level that you uh, keep pipelines moving forward so that um, the client doesn't miss out on somebody working in the environment. Yeah, it's, it's probably, I always, I mean, I could be speaking out of turn, but I always think that the American businesses are better at contract and the UK businesses are better at perm. And yeah, I, I would, I would say when you say better, I would say it's just, um, it's more involved. Um, you know, a lot of the UK contract business came from, you know, for example, an engineer would be working uh, on site. He has buddies that could also come in on the contract and that was their contract business. Whereas mm-hmm. a lot of the American market uh, is going out. You're going to, you have to win an agreement. You have to gain the trust of, um, of the client. And then you're, you know, the, the journey ahead is to not only, like I said, find talent just to make sure that they stay on that project. Um, so I think it's, I think although the UK is a, is a more mature contract market, I think um, sometimes mm. the US can be a more complex um, contract market. Yeah. And a lot of UK recruitment companies have done very well historically in Houston, your, 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 your NES and Brunel and S3 and Spencer Ogden. There's quite, there's quite a few, isn't there? Yeah, there was a, you know, a, a big wave um, for about 10 years there during the, uh, the oil and gas boom. Um, and I think it was just just as uh, as as, they all, as we all think, and that's if you have a great product in one country, uh, it should um, you know uh, replicate well in in one of the largest growing markets in the world. And now um, I would say one of the is the largest market in the world. I, I would say that some of the um, some of the uh, downfalls are uh, understanding that local presence needed um, as far as that relationship style selling um, in the U.S. That's quite different in the U.K. And that's where some maybe have found issues of really getting um, success that they, they planned on. But those that got it right, I mean, they're, they're doing really well, um, have big numbers, uh, especially in Houston. Um, I think the, the recent downfall in oil and gas hurt quite a bit. And some have uh, either felt the pain and, and stuck it out or some have kind of abandoned the market. But now that things are going back on track, um, quite a bit are, are back in the market. Yeah, it, I, I've lived in two oil and gas towns myself. I, I lived in... I lived in Perth in Australia whenever the boom was happening there. And, and then we moved to Calgary to try and catch the boom in 2015. And we know what happened then. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, that's, that's always the, uh, the interesting part, you know, is by the time you hear of a boom and, uh, and if you're not already in location, by the time you get set up uh, and getting people in place, you almost find that you've missed the boom and you've overspent. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the challenge, I think, um, is understanding markets on the long term to where you should be investing um, and putting people. Um, so those that are chasing that boom, unless it's from a perm standpoint where you can make quick deals, uh, get your money and get out. Um, I think it's it's really risky unless you really, really know where you want to be in the long run. When when was your first international move? Uh, well, you I. I opened uh, Mexico City uh, for for a company that I was working for in the U.S. Um, and the predominantly was to support our internal client 
because they needed a contract solution um, in one of the toughest markets, um, I would say, to have that solution. But, you know, it took a lot of time um, to figure out how we could do it both legally but also to make a profit. Um, we were able to do that. Um, but going back to the original point, we had a reason and a long-term reason to be in Mexico City, so it made sense. Whereas if we would have just said, how we think we can make some money in Mexico City, I don't think we would have made it and lasted um, the time it took to get up and going. What, um, and that operation is still going today. What was that like setting up that office? Um, do you speak Spanish? I speak enough Spanish at the time. I've gotten a lot better over the years because I've spent a lot more time. Um, but I think the difficulty was it just wasn't a mature market outside of headhunting. And that was, um, you know, contract um, staffing to say in the, in Mexico city was um, it's a really tough thing to do, to do um, the labor market in, in Mexico in general, and most Latin American countries, as, as you find out is, is a very pro labor workforce. So they have a ton of laws to protect, um, you know, the labor force and rightfully so, because obviously they've been through some hard times over the past, you know, decades and, um, so when you're trying to implement a temporary or flexible workforce into a society that's that's more long-term um, security type workforce, um, it's just really difficult. It takes a lot of a lot of lawyers to get involved. It takes a lot of HR professionals to really understand not only how the law works, but how are you not only going to sell it to uh, the potential contractors to even accept that environment. But what we found is once we figured it out, um, it was actually really attractive. Um, in a time when actually the market was uh, was pretty flat, relatively flat in Mexico City. Um, but there was a lot of people that were, once you could explain it to them, could see the benefit of it. And now it's, it's booming. Um, you know, everyone's uh, using contractors and, you know, uh, a lot of international companies have moved into Mexico City over the past 10 years and are, are fully taking advantage of what they take advantage elsewhere in the world. And what was it like from an internal staffing perspective for you? Did, did, you, did you get somebody local on the on the ground did we able to bring people down from the states what what was the challenges of putting an american-based work culture into a latin-based city yeah i think two two big um focus points were there was a lot of talent recruitment of talent available but like i said from a headhunter's um standpoint so they're really good at, at recruiting and matching job skills to job requisitions um, but they didn't understand kind of the project uh, recruitment world and how you uh, not only find people for jobs, but you plan out a project to make sure that you fulfill um, kind of the client's needs. So we had to, we had to do quite a bit of work. Um, and we, and what we did is we involved the client in those, in those uh, searches. So we were doing the, the first stage of interviews for um, our first, you know, five, 10 people on the ground. We actually had the client get involved with those interviews to really get them to understand what that work life cycle would look like. And it helped quite a bit um, screen out some of those that probably weren't up for the task or maybe not the right fit. Um, and, and at the end of the day, we just really got lucky with finding people that can not only understand recruitment, but understand potentially a, a new market. And that's that contract staffing side. And you were down there during the recession. Did, did you manage to kind of skip the recession as such by, by being there or did you still feel the pains of it? Well, the, the interesting thing about Mexico City and why I think um, those that have a long-term plan there, it actually does work out real well, um, both on engineering and the technology side. Whereas when the U.S. goes into recession, a lot of uh, money is spent uh, in Mexico because they're still catching up um, you know, from being a third world country. Mm. So when um, a lot of 
uh, the damage was happening in the U.S. and projects were coming to a halt. There's still a lot moving forward, a lot of construction projects. And, you know, I don't know if you've been to Mexico City, but, you know, 10 years ago, it looked completely different than, than um, the city you see now. Um, you know, buildings are all over the place. Um, the infrastructure is, is much better. So all these projects were going forward during those times where some of those projects in the U.S. had come to a halt. So it was actually really good timing to be have a presence in both the U.S. and, and, and Mexico. I, ha- and that's, I have this vision of you. I have this vision of you being down there, and it's like it's like a scene out of Narcos where you're setting up the <laughs> you're setting up the office and <laughs> early, early days it was something like that, but uh, nowadays it's it's much more refined and you know it's very similar to other major cities in, in the world. What uh, what led to your uh, your move to Abu Dhabi? So something very similar. We had a we had a need um, to be uh, in the Middle East, specifically in Abu Dhabi, um, but uh, also very similar um, the contracts, staffing, or, or recruitment uh, market. Very different in the Middle East, and sometimes can be uh, illegal if not done the right way. So I think um, we we wanted to try to make one last ditch effort and see if we can make make it work and make contract uh, recruitment work uh, in that market. So something very similar to Mexico City, a lot of um, research, a lot of investment in time and, and, and just making sure that we felt good about the model. And then once we were able to do that, we, we actually saw that we had quite a bit, a bit to offer the region. So we went in to kind of fulfill uh, one need. It turned into be a, quite a nice product to um, multiple clients outside of our, our initial need. And it was a great market uh, at the time. And you know, even though Dubai had already gone through its boom, uh, there was quite a big uh, amount of projects going off, especially on the rail side um, and other construction projects on the infrastructure side. And um, we just really got there at the right time with a really good model. Um, and then we did really well. We were we were pretty much all throughout the region um, doing business. And, um, you know, it's like once again, still there today um, and doing well. And I think, you know, with the Middle East, if you can get it right, and you're there for the long run, then I think you'll benefit from it. But if you're trying to catch the curve or you're trying to catch the uptick, you know, a lot of people have been burned on, uh, on Dubai. And as we all know, or they've maybe gotten there right when it starts to come down. And when it comes down, it comes down pretty hard. These boom and bust markets, as I've learned to my own detriment, they're, uh, <laughs> they're, they're, they're risky. Eh? Uh, so what was your personal life like when you were like in Mexico compared to Abu Dhabi? Like, could you find two more different places on earth? <laughs> um, you know, as, as far as a personal life, I think, um, you know, with, with Mexico City in the, in the early days, it was, you had to worry about safety. You also had to worry about, uh, you know, professional uh, safety as far as, um, you know, you had um, uh, potential um, fraudulent activities going on in, in the business market. You also had to kind of make sure that, uh, your employees were safe. So that was just as much uh, part of the process as you know, making sure their skill set was a fit. Um, whereas in, in the Middle East, it was more about most of our product or our, our clients um, were looking for expat um, individuals coming across. So we, we almost became more of a, uh, a visa service company uh, to get people in country on time and, and staying long enough to complete the project. So both had completely different um, requirements in order for us to see a success in the market. Um, but it was all about the beginning stages of understanding what it really was that that client needed uh, for us to see a success. So I think if we would have went in with the mindset of, 
we're just going to find you good candidates for your project. I think we would have would probably have failed because we would have missed the mark on what the client really needed. So you, you went back to the US then, and then the world ended in oil and gas in 2015. Yeah, I would say um, um, the US uh, is, is an interesting one. It's still the most robust market in the world. Um, and when oil and gas is down, um, usually you'll see other projects uh, at its peak. Um, so, you know, IT technology side of the business has, has been an absolute um, gangbuster since, um, you know, right around that time anyways. Uh, but also other things have taken off. You know, you can look at the healthcare market. It's just an absolute booming industry. Uh, construction industry is taking off in areas. And it's just one of those things where if if all of your eggs are in that one basket and if it's not a diverse enough basket, then you probably are going to end up in a, in a failure um, situation, or you're going to have to downsize and wait and, and wait it out. Um, I've just been lucky enough to be always in a diverse situation where we could, um, you know, just move resources to a more complex market and, and, and hang out and then um, be successful there. And then once oil and gas is coming back, we're already there. We don't have to reopen shop and so forth. Mm. And I think that's, that's really how you make it through these boom and bust markets. Well, what's your current remit with Gatica? So I, I run their America's region. So Gattaca, uh, which is formerly uh, known as MatchTech, um, which is one of the largest engineering um, firms, they acquired uh, networkers. Um, and when they did, they had quite a bit of an international footprint. Um, so my experience aligned perfectly for them at the moment because it was uh, ability for them to get someone who had uh, international experience, understood the UK market, had worked for a UK company before. So that wasn't going to be an unfamiliar situation, but also my experience with the region of, um, you know, Latin America, US and Canada. Um, so they really, I think there was a trust there right away that um, they had hired the right person to kind of do something with what they had acquired. And we've done quite well. You know, I, I would say we, we, um, we've grown quite uh, uh, quicker than they originally had hoped for. And, you know, we're, we're double digit growth each year on year. Uh, we've opened new offices um, quickly, and we'll see what the next couple of years uh, has in store for us. Um, so I suppose I, I've never worked at a high level at a large company. So a lot of this, and I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are, are, are at a similar standpoint. So what was it like when you went into Gattaca? Like what, what, was the fir- what is the first thing a group president should do to get things moving in the right direction? I think it's all the, it's to me, it's all similarly or, or the same. I think, you know, you have to really understand what you have before you figure out what you're going to go and get. Um, and I think that's a mistake. Sometimes uh, people roles make, they've been successful somewhere else before and they just figure it's a plug and play type scenario. And it's just never really that that's, that's the case. So I, I think for me, it was understanding not only what the company could offer uh, globally, but you know what did we what did we acquire? Um, what were the who who were in the right seats? Um, did we have the right seats? Were we in the right locations? How was the process? Was our structure appropriate? How was our compensation levels? How did we stand up to the market? You know, are we a specialist? Are we a generalist? Are we we just really need to figure all that stuff out before we move forward? So we took I would say four months and really dug into um, all of that. And once we figured out exactly who we wanted to be uh, and what we had, we actually we had something really nice. You know, we offered a, a specialist product um, to areas that 
were being bombarded by generalists and we really found our niche and um, we grew quite quite rapidly once we put a sales process in place, established a sales culture and, and we've just been off to the races since then. You know, we don't have every client. Um, we don't uh, we don't have all the business, not even close, but the clients that we do have and the business that we, we do have, it's, it's re- it really means a lot to both the client and us and we're building something off of it. So it's worked out quite nicely. What uh, what what's the most challenging part of your job? Well, there's a lot of challenges. Um, you know, when you have uh, multiple locations, multiple cultures, um, a lot of expectations, um, different expectations for different areas. Um, plus, you've got you know the corporate um, company. You know, the corporate company is quite a big company, uh, whereas we're more of a, in my region, we're more of us in startup mode. So you've got two kind of uh, separate uh, marching orders. You just have to make sure it works for everyone. Um, not, you're never going to please everyone, but I think uh, as long as you have very clear um, and defined purpose in each of your locations, um, you've established your culture and you stick to that culture, and then you've got that proper sales presence, I think you'll do well. Uh, it's just knowing what, it, what that is first before you go out and, and try to sell it. Is it just contract you guys do? Oh, no, we, we do quite a bit of perm, um, being on the specialist side uh, of the business. Okay. You know, I would say we're uh, 50-50 perm and contract. Okay. And uh, with that, when, when you're looking at recruiters now compared to years ago, you, you touched on this at the start of the, the interview. What, how do you manage to get people to use the phone? Is that, a, is that something that you're trying to overcome as a business like a lot of other leaders out there? <laughs> Um, yeah, that, that dinosaur archaic technology that sits on people's desk uh, called the phone is, uh, is an interesting <laughs> one. I think, um, you know, I, I went through my phase too, where I was constantly battling, um, trying to get people to understand the way I did. Um, and I was successful in the business. And I think sometimes we get, we get trapped in that mode to where it's, you will learn the way I did or, or else. And, and sometimes you may, you may head down the wrong path doing that. So what we've tried to do is we tried to break it down to what is it exactly that's going to make someone successful. So it could be as simple as, you know, your, your CV in front of a client and being able to close that deal. Okay. Well, how do we get to that point? Is it only by phone or is it by face to face? Is it a coffee? Is it a LinkedIn send out? There's so many ways to do it, but if you're not doing those activities, to get to that point of that CV in front of a client and that client to buy uh, your candidate, then you're not going to be successful. So I think what we've tried to do is inform uh, the newcomers about how useful a phone can be and what it, what the benefits could be. But we've also tried to be open minded enough to where, why are we shutting out technology? Could you not use both? I think we've done a good job, but listen, I'm, I'm always learning each day because I'm not the most technically savvy uh, person, but uh, it's, it's, it's amazing on what you can get done these days without uh, picking up the phone. So we try to use both and we try mm. to take advantage of both. Yeah, makes sense. And it, would you have any advice for any UK recruiters who move over to Houston? Um, it's, have you seen any, any people that have done it really well? Have you, have you seen any, have you seen it not work in your time? You must've, you must've, you must be aware that there's so many British recruiters coming and going from the Houston market. Uh, absolutely. We've even experienced that internally within our own, our own company. And I think what happens is when you, when you live in, in uh, an outside market, especially the UK and most of your work is done over the phone or via LinkedIn or something, 
And I think you almost feel that if you've been successful doing it that way, that it's almost a guarantee when you get into Houston, you're sitting in the market that you should only see success. And I think what you sometimes overlook is the power of that, that connection um, is, is just, is it can work magic for you. So if you're not used to making those connections, you're not used to getting out in front of the client uh, or putting yourself out there making those cold calls or making those introductions so that you actually build a robust pipeline of business then what happens is, is that one contact you had or that one account that you had been working with, when that dries up, you don't know how to actually properly build a business. Um, and so you're kind of stuck in a foreign land. You're different than the local culture. Your accent's different. Um, sometimes you just get into a situation where you just don't have the tools to actually properly build a business from start. So my advice would be, while you're making the transition or making the decision to come into the market, take the time to also learn um, the importance of actually building a business from scratch um, and get yourself with, you know, if, you, if you're lucky enough to have, if you're in a UK company and they have a local presence, you know, I would start working with them early, uh, learning how they make cold calls, learning how they go on to meetings, learning how they connect with that local person that may not be familiar with, um, you know, the, the British business or, or wherever else you're, you're calling from so that when you get into the market, hopefully you've got established business, but even if you don't, that you can kind of find your way into that um, and being and being a local success. Cause it, it could be a benefit to you that if you have an international um, presence, but you also have local knowledge, then you become a powerful individual in the market. Matt Evelt, that's us today. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's been fantastic. I appreciate you having me on. Uh, man, you were fantastic yourself. Take care. All right, take care. Well, a massive thank you to Matt for coming on the podcast. Incredible journey that he's had, taking him all over the world. Interesting to get the perspective of a U.S senior exec working for a UK company and just to get his version on that. Now, something interesting there is he was suggesting that the American market requires you to be more relationship driven than transactional. And I think a lot of Americans view British recruitment firms as quite transactional, which, you know, can be a fair enough comment in the S3 mold and companies that have come out of that. And, you know, that works for, for certain companies and that's fine. Um, what I have found is it, it, it's hard to lump America into one bracket. I would probably lump Texas into the same bracket as Calgary and Western Australia and probably the Middle East where there are oil and gas hubs where there's it's real embedded community of business leaders and... It's a bit old school in that you have to get in front of them. You have to do a bit of a handshake, um, have a cigar, glass of whiskey. No, I'm only joking about that. But you, it's, you definitely have to press the flesh. And in those regional oil and gas hubs, I think that's really important. But that's what's fascinating about recruitment. It's, uh, it's different in every region that you work around the world and every sector, and there's no right way, there's no wrong way, there's just different ways. And hopefully through this podcast, 
we're uh, we're getting to listen to people who've got the experience to tell us what's what. So again, massive thank you to Matt. And thank you, everybody, for listening. I really appreciate it and all the feedback that we've been getting. Um, our downloads are almost doubling every week, which yeah, it's pretty amazing. So so grateful for all the support that we're getting. And we'll be back tomorrow with another fantastic guest. <laughs>